hear so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side. Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. Today, I'm joined by the beyond incredible Sarah Seidner, CNN's multiple award-winning national and international correspondent who's led the way in championing humane and honest reporting while simultaneously dodging bullets, literally, <laughs> battling hurricane winds and having to fight her way out of angry mobs. I don't know anyone who's put herself more on the line than Sarah. Sarah was live throughout the 2008 Mumbai terrorist attacks that lasted 60 hours. She was part of the team that won a Peabody for CNN's coverage of the Arab Spring. Her work in Libya reporting in the midst of rebel fighters during the fall of Tripoli has been recognized all over the world, and for it she was honored with Sky's WFTV Achievement of the Year Award. In addition to all of this, Sarah's won awards for her coverage of the Gaza conflict, for her 2012 Freedom Project, Operation Hope, and for reporting on India's unwanted girls. But this list goes on and on. When people talk about heroic journalists, this is what they mean. Sarah, I'm so happy you could be with us today. I am delighted to be here. It has been literally months that we've been talking about this. And I'm like, I have to see BD. You always lift my spirit. And so, um, and we need lifting right now, journalists around the world. So thank you for having me on. And I know your schedule is totally nuts. So we, we kind of just had to force this to happen. <laughs> and I'm so glad that we did. Um, and you bought me another frog. They keep showing up in my house, these silver frogs, and I didn't realize how many of them that I had until I found someone who wanted them because they've literally just been sitting in like little boxes all over my, my house that I am now cleaning out, which is a nightmare. We won't get into it. So I probably don't have to ask you, but I am going to ask, why do you think I played Rainbow Connection by Kermit? Well, it is sung by a frog, so that's one, and I know we, we both have a love of frogs. Um, I don't know why, but that song always makes me feel teary-eyed. Not sad, but sort of emotional. Um, it brings out emotion, and I don't, I don't know why. You tell me. I don't know. Well, no, I, the it's frog, we, you, you got it in one. I mean, I, I'm a very simple person. Like, you know, we, we met at this LA Times event. Um, I just performed this track with Linda Perry, yes. our new song. And you came up to me, and, and we talked about country music. We and, did. you know, you were so lovely. And I was like, who's this incredible woman? And you sort of mentioned something about news, but you were very, um, you know, flippant about it. And honestly, I don't really watch the news. I'm not mad at you about so that. So I was at a friend's house, um, Ali Willis, and she has the news on all the time. And I was actually just telling her about meeting this amazing woman. And then suddenly this person comes on the screen. And I'm like, wait, oh, that's my friend, that's Sarah. <laughs> and she's like, Sarah's one of the biggest, you know, news okay. journalists. She's wrong. She's been talking to my mother, but yes. <laughs> and, you know, it was so amazing because you were so sort of 
low-key about it, but obviously you are widely celebrated, recognized, loved. It's, it is low-key, and I'm mostly hated for the, for the record because, you know, we're the enemy of the people, but we won't get into that. Um, but but I, I have to say that, like, what, what we do, I don't think about TV as much as I used to. In the very, very beginning, it was like these nerves and these things where you had to sort of stand there and there's a camera. Um, I do think of it more on the lines of, I'm just interested in people. That's why I came up to you, because I'm interested in people, and I found something, like, hit a chord, no pun intended, um, when you played the music, and when you were talking, I'm like, this person is fascinating. Like, I need to go say hi, and I will tell you that I'm actually a shy person, (laughs) oddly. None of my friends would ever believe that, but I actually, as a young person, was very painfully shy. And so, even coming up to you when I'm not in the capacity of a working journalist, just as a regular human. Um, it was nerve-wracking for me a little bit to like walk up there and be like, hi. I was a little fangirling. If you didn't notice, I was kind of doing that. So I will take you <laughs> as a fangirl any day, Sarah. I mean, really. And I, you know, I, I actually do understand a little of that because I'm really introverted. I don't actually, I like people, but I am not that outwardly social in many ways unless I'm in the mode and so I sort of understand that conflict between being pretty private and being you know someone that gets energy kind of from being alone but then when you're in that mindset when you've got that hat on then obviously you can do it yeah it's it's almost I'm a Gemini so that's another probably it's just an excuse but it's like two minds and it's not that I'm two different people it's just that I have two ways of being and they're very strong one is extremely private and one is extremely public and they don't mesh well so when I want to be quiet and you know take some time to meditate and be quiet I do that and I don't explain it to anybody and I don't talk to anyone and I can go for days doing stuff like that Um, sometimes I need that separation so the theme of this show as you probably know but just to to give you the the lowdown um it's called orange juice for the years it's taken from an oliver Sacks quote about the power of music which we've talked about a lot um and how it does go beyond being just entertainment as something that is you know core to our humanity um and the specific quote is music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears it is a remedy a tonic an orange juice for the ear and I'd just like to know, what does that mean to you? I mean, I can honestly, I think, say, and this is going to sound pretty dramatic, but that is also part of my personality. Music has saved my life, and more than once. Um, I, I can recall songs when I was going through some difficult times, and we all have our dark moments. You know, the black dog comes. Um, and for some of us in the creative world, it comes more often, it seems. Um, And I cannot tell you how many times when I'm sort of feeling that low feeling and I hear something, it is often on the radio and often random, which is a little strange because I know everybody has like their playlist and this is my mood lifter and this is my, I like serendipity and I like it when something just happens. It feels, I don't know, heaven sent. Um, I can't tell you how many times that has happened where it's like a reminder that the sun still rises for sinners. Like, it's that mentality where you're like, huh, okay, this feels bad right now, but you know what? I remember when this song played and I was fine and I was good 
and I had gone through something else. And so many times in my life, little droplets have happened where music has come into my, into my head or on the radio or, you know, someone's playing it on an elevator. I mean, weird places where I'm like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. You get through this. Just keep going. I love that point because, you know, actually that one project that I ended up doing was this music dementia study, looking at how music can help people with dementia, which we all know. Um, but before that, people thought that it was specific to memory. So it had to be music that you already loved, that was part of your biography. Um, and that would trigger a memory and bring these people back. But actually, the study that I did was new music. Mm. And, you know, Oliver Sacks says, like, music does not have to be familiar to exert its emotional pull. And so that's what you're talking about. It's like when that song comes on and it just lifts you out of that m mood, it's not because you know it. It's because right. you feel it. You feel it. 100%. 100%. And th that's why new artists, when they come forward, there are a few right now where I'm Okay, I'm a bit obsessive, so I will warn you that when I get hooked on something, like I play it like 50 times until it's, until it's stuck, until I will never forget it. It's this weird thing that I do um, over and over and over again. It's like the top 40 stations where they keep playing the same top 40 song. <laughs> that is me with new artists. And so right now I am literally over and over and over and over again playing like Brandy Carlisle. Like I can't not play it. Um, it's it. I need sometimes, and when I listen to the new music, it strikes a chord, and I feel like I know it from before, but I don't because it's new. But there's something about that song that fits. Um, it's so weird, but it happens so many times, um, which is why I always pay for music. I'm very happy. Yeah, Otherwise, I I'd kick you it. off the show. Yeah, no, I, I always <laughs> pay for it. No, because I do believe in, you know, if I have the means to pay for another artist's work, I'm going to do that. Um, m my mother is a teacher and an artist, so I have been trained well. Um, but I, I feel like we, we get away from the idea that, like, this is not just mine. This should be available to everyone, but there is a price to pay mm. for creativity. Um, and I do believe in paying for it. So that's me. What was the first song that imprinted on you? Okay, so <laughs> when I was a kid, um, I come from a mixed-race family, um, and Stevie Wonder, I didn't even know this, like, was playing all the time. It was the 70s, you know, but Stevie Wonder is like, every decade he comes up with something new. Um, and Isn't She Lovely, I think, was playing when I was very, very young, probably about four, I think it's around four years old. Um, and I remember th remembering that song. You know how you have like sort of your first memory? That was the one. And I wondered later in life, because until you asked me, I never thought of it. Later in life, the song played and I was like, I started to tear up and like just love it. And so I downloaded it and I paid for it. Um, and I'm like, I love this song so much. And then I started looking when it came out and I went, Oh, that's why you know. I knew it already. I already knew I could hum the melody already, but I had it had been lost sort of in my life, and then it came back. I think I was a teenager, um, and that was the one, Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Let's take a listen to "Isn't She Lovely" by Stevie Wonder.
hey, I'm this is... singing. <laughs> I love it. And very beautifully, I might add. <laughs> this is BT Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dub Lab. And I'm joined by the absolutely incredible Sarah Seidner, um, CNN's multiple award-winning national and international correspondent. And that was Stevie Wonder, Isn't She Lovely? And that was the track that you remember imprinting when you were four. Yeah, it worked. And, and I have loved him forever since then. Every song, even some of the kitschy ones, and there are a few, every single one, it just, it makes me happy to hear Stevie. Do you remember being a, an actual four-year-old and hearing it? Like, do you have that memory? Mm -hmm. I actually remember where I was. I, I think, honestly, I think it was probably one of my first memories. Like, when I think... What was my first memory as a kid? I think that was one of the first memories, which gives me a clue that music was important, you know, to me very, very early on. Um, I remember, I just couldn't remember the bedroom that I was standing in. You um, could or you could I can. You can, yeah. okay. When I hear that song, I go back to that memory. Amazing. Yeah, isn't that nuts? Yeah. Kind of cool. And do you know what you're thinking as a four-year-old? I have no idea, but I have heard stories um, from my mother. Um, this is disgusting, so forgive me. The story goes that at one point, you know, we all wore diapers at some point. I think back then they were <laughs> still using cloth. Like, my mom was still into, like, the cloth diapers. I'm like, wow, that's a lot, but good for you. Um, and I was learning to be potty trained, I think, at that point. And um, I picked up some of my... Uh, what's the good word, poo, uh, and brought it out in, like, such excitement and put it on the bed and was like, look, I did it. Not in my diaper. It's in my hand. So that is disgusting, and I apologize to everyone for that disgusting memory. But, yeah, that's the story I've been told. The last thing I was expecting you'd say. I'm sorry. No, it's amazing. Disgusting. Sarah, the truth is never disgusting. Okay, but I'm not sure that that truth will set you free. I think it'll just make you want to, like, not have kids, but I apologize. <laughs> and so, just painting a picture, the rest of, of the, that scene... Um, <laughs> really, you don't want to? No, no I mean the wider gotcha, picture. Yes. Um, so, you were born in Florida to an African-American father and a British mother. Yeah. What was your early life like? And was music something that they were into or, or were you? Um, music was always playing. That's what I remember. Um, and like many children, my parents separated um, when I was quite young. Um, but it's always been a part of my life. I remember when I was about eight, seven or eight, um, I used to go, but at that point, my parents had separated, and my mom and I were living in this very rural town. I grew up, I've had a thousand lives. I grew up in a, a rural part of Florida. And um, <laughs> I used to go out to the car that we had, um, which was a little red truck, because um, we were in the country. And I'd sit there, and I would turn on Casey Kasem in the top 40. And I would sit there and I would listen to it like as long as I could. And my mom was like, where are you? You know, this, this kind of stuff. And I was like hiding in there eating candy. I wasn't supposed to be eating candy. So that was my like treat and my sanctuary, this, the car. And to this day, I will sit in my car when I hear a song that I like. And if it hasn't finished, I will sit at the office in my car, in my parking space, let the song finish and then leave. 
And get the candy. And the candy still <laughs> hidden under my seat. If you need a snack, if you find my car, there is candy under the seat. But it's amazing because <laughs> that idea of ceremony, you know, which I talk about so much in music, and it wasn't just opening up a record and that art form and the putting, you know, the needle on. Even a car can be a form of ceremony. You know, it creates a space. It gives this focus on the music, and particularly even if you're traveling, then you've got this natural um, music video going yeah. on. It's know. a bubble. Like for me, taking a long drive, I don't, I'm not sure I could do it without music because even when the music's not playing, I'm singing. You may not want to be in there, but I am singing. I am singing loud. I am singing songs I know. I am missinging. I'm singing the wrong words, but it, it's always on a trip. I feel like it's kind of my little safe bubble. Um, I still feel that way. I like sitting in cars and listening to music. So you were mainly raised by your mom. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and what were you like as a kid? High energy. Even though I was shy, um, you could not get me out of a tree, off of a horse. I loved animals to a fault um, where, like, once I had a pony and the pony came into the house um, and ate a bunch of food. And mom wasn't all that pleased with me at that point. But animals, goats, you name the animal and like snakes, all of that, frogs, um, they've been my friends um, because I was an only child. And so animals have always sort of been, I've always seen them almost as other people, you know, and it's like, okay, and I talk to them and I, you know, have conversations. They often don't talk back, but it's fine. They listen. Um, so, but very energetic, like way too much energy. I'm pretty sure I probably would have been medicated if I <laughs> <laughs> if it was now. Um, Thank but it, God you won. Well, it was go play, go outside. Yeah. yeah. Go outside. Um, and so that's what I did. And I came up with, you know, imaginary worlds and that whole thing. Like my imagination really had to work hard because I would get bored because I was so energetic. Um, so it was wonderful living in the country. There were some pitfalls. It was not easy being a person of color uh, where we were. But I, I have to say I would not have traded that sort of country life for anything in the world that shaped who I am. Were you always brave? I'm not brave. That's the thing is that, you know, we talk about bravery as if it's like a complete <clears throat> lack of fear. Like, oh, fearless. I think of all of the terrible things that can happen when I get into my car in L.A. traffic. Like, I am constantly thinking about, oh, my God, accident, I could die. I could, I mean, it is this crazy brain that I have. I call it, like, the news brain, where it's like all the negative things that can happen to you on your way to work, on your way to the doctor, <laughs> on your way to getting coffee. You could, you know, trip over a thing and, you know, on your way when you're running. Like, I think of all the horrible things that can happen. I feel like what bravery is for every human being is being able to take that step knowing that it can be your last. Mm. And it's that conquering of fear over and over and over again that is true bravery, not being unafraid. If you are unafraid, you are probably going to get run over by a bus because you're going to walk out into a traffic because you're not afraid of anything. Fear is a gift. Like we've been given fear to keep us alive, I think. Um, but I, But I do struggle um, a lot with fear. And it's the idea of going, you know what, I'm afraid. I don't care. I'm going. I'm, I'm taking that step. And it's not always the right step. And it's not always the perfect thing to do. But sometimes it feels good just to do it. Yeah, to remind yourself that like, you have some control over, you know, your decisions in life. 
not total control, but but some. And I think it's also that idea that a lot of the time when we're out of our comfort zone, it's when we're the most alive and the most creative and the most present. So in that sense, it's almost just using fear as a way of being reminded of you know why we're here yeah. and that our time is limited and anything can happen. Um, but that adds a certain presence to the quality of life. It absolutely does. I think, and this is going to sound odd, but one of the times when I, when I clearly remember feeling so alive, so present, that I could smell the air was when our lives were threatened. We were in Libya. I mean, I can remember every single detail, um, the taste in my mouth from the dust sort of the, the, the dustiness of the place, the way that the sun looked. Like, I can remember things because I wasn't worrying about what was going to happen. I wasn't thinking about what we had done in the past. I was literally paying attention to the exact moments that we were having as they were happening. And it's the weirdest thing. And I told someone, I said, you know, you can get addicted to being a war correspondent. And they said, like, that's ridiculous. You know, what do you mean? And I'm like, because it makes you be present in a way that other things don't. I have some friends who um, were in the army and in the armed forces. And, you know, that's why I think sometimes people have a hard time when they come back to civilian life. It's a whole different experience when you are so focused on trying to stay safe and alive uh, when your life can actually go right then and you're very aware of that um, it changes you it changes your perspective and it makes you pay attention um, I wish that I could do that every single day without having my life threatened tell me just very briefly about what made you want to fight I read something about a school role uh, when you realized that your teacher was checking you as white because he thought you were smart? Yeah. Um, because I grew up, you know, as a mixed-race child, and um, my mother had always said something to me that imprinted, and that was that whenever you're asked what you are, because I got asked that a lot, like, what are you? Um, she said, just tell people that you're a human being. Start at the basics. And it stuck. And so um, I remember being in class. It was in middle school. I was sitting in class, and um, the teacher was, you know, doing all the sort of statistics of who's in the class and how many people and names. And uh, he was checking off race for some reason. And he looked at me, and he said, you know what? I'm going to check white because you're a smart kid. And I remember feeling honored at first, like, oh, I'm like, I'm smart. You know what I mean? Um, but it was the first time someone connected race with what you are and what you can do and who you are. I hadn't seen that connection yet. I hadn't sort of made that connection. Of course we all notice color. Of course we all notice different hair textures. I mean, you're kids. You notice everything. Um, but there was nothing assigned to it. There was no value assigned to it. He was the first person to assign value to race. And I didn't realize it at the time. I was a kid. I just thought, yay me, I'm smart. Um, but as time went on and I, and I started sort of seeing and realizing that there were things assigned to certain races, it devastated me later in life. I thought, 
what kind of a message was that? And in front of the class, this wasn't like a secret, like it was in front of the class. So like other kids also then, if they hadn't have assigned smart to being white and assigned the opposite to being black, it, it, um, it definitely had an impact. Tell me, Sarah, about the first album that shaped who you are as you were growing up. Purple Rain was um, my teenage years. My God, I'm telling my age. Um, there was something majestic and magical about his ability. His range was insane. Like, I would try to sing the songs and be like, oh, oh. like, that's hard. Like, it, it was one of those times where I'm like, wow, that's really hard to sing. <laughs> to go from, like, the deepest baritone to the highest soprano, like, in the same riff. I'm like, wow, this is hard. Um, and then I went to see the movie. And remember how I told you that I, like, overdo things and, like, overplay 17 times? Jesus. I paid for the movie 17 times. <laughs> oh now, movies were, like, $2 because it was, like, you know, in the summer or whatever. So I... <laughs> Um, but I got kicked out because I was underage. So like the last couple of times, my friend and I kept trying to get closer and find like the best seats. Um, and we got kicked out because they were like, what are these kids doing in here? Like, but you're like, I don't know what happened at the end. Right. <laughs> <And I laughs> <seen> it, like, <laughs> we were so ashamed when we got kicked out. We we're like, oh my God, they caught us because we weren't 17 and it was like rated whatever or whatever it was so it was it was traumatic um but yeah that that album um every single song on that album and there was also you know at the age that I was there was also sort of the sexuality thing happening and Prince is like ultra sexual and my mother was a little worried it was that old school thing where like she liked was it the Beatles or the Stones she liked the Stones and so I gave her that analogy I'm like you liked the Stones when you were young I'm more of a Prince fan and Michael Jackson. It was sort of Michael Jackson mm -hmm. and Prince were the two big, amazing pop stars at the time. And I was like, I veered to, to Prince. Okay, well, let's take a listen to When Doves Cry, Prince. Dig if you will the picture of you and I engaged in a kiss. The sweat of your body covers me. Can you, my darling? Can you picture this dream if you can, courtyard, an ocean of violets in bloom? Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. When Doves Cry, Prince from Purple Rain. Um, and Sarah, that was the record that really had an impact on you growing up. Definitely. And you saw the film 17 times <laughs> at the age of 17? I was younger than that. Okay. I, 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 I know it was before 17 because the rated R films, you had to be a certain age, and we were not that age. So it might have been 15 or 16. Like okay. It, it was somewhere in there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, and, I mean, it's, you know, it's one of the groundbreaking records yeah. as is Michael Jackson's Thriller yeah. um, which kind of paved the way for you know Purple Rain yeah Thriller uh, was before and then Purple Rain came a, a couple but Prince had a lot of see I didn't know who he was until really then and then I went and bought all his stuff back to like soft and wet and all those like incredible um, albums that I didn't know existed um, so it introduced me to his whole sort of genre because he has a genre of music that is unlike almost anybody 
it changes so much. Well, and it mixes so mm. many different genres. I mean, so good. Like like the Beatles in that yes. sense, just incredibly pioneering. Um, but tell me, I'm really curious about this obsession, <laughs> this obsessive. You know, you have to listen to that song 40 times. Yeah. You have to watch that film 17 times. What is it? Is it because you want it to really stay with you with like every detail about it? I guess when I like something, I like something. And it, and yes, it is obsessive. There's definitely, <laughs> there's definitely a bit of obsessive behavior there. Um, I think it just makes me feel good. And I can listen to something 20 times and still want to hear it again one more time. I feel like my memory is broken because half the time I still can't remember the words. But I will tell you that when I relax after I've done this obsessive thing, right, and like a year later the song comes on, I can recite all the words. Um, but only when I'm sort of relaxed and not trying. So I also think it's a way to put all of that in my head so that it just comes out of me. And I'll sing, like I said, like, by myself in the car and try to remember like all the different songs that I that I have adored and I forget them of course we all do and then one day they pop up and you know on the radio or listening to some streaming service and I'm like I love this song I love this song and you studied telecommunications or was it journalism it's the same so at my university they had two tracks they had basically going um, journalism and sort of the newspaper track and then journalism the broadcast track mm. and telecommunications was the was the broadcast track was that something you always realized you were interested in um fairly early it was the end of of high school um or for you a levels it was the it was sort of you know going into into university i i think i knew um that that was a path for me um my mother actually laughed she's like um you can't sit still to read a book you like math what is happening she's like and your writing is terrible like my actual script like she couldn't read half the things because I, I write like a like a doctor it's terrible like it, really bad it needs decoding um and so she was like are you are you sure this is what you want to do and I was like yeah I'm, I'm sure um as it turns out later on you know it, things happened and she's like oh what do you want to do sort of international reporting like that seems like that would be great for you when she realized I was very serious about it and I was like no I'm good like I will stay in America and I will report here and there's lots of things to do and fast forward you know 15 20 years and here I am in India right and my mother always looks at me she's like I was right and I'm like whatever um but it turns out that my grandmother my mother's mother um had wanted to be a journalist at, at some point. Um, you know, they survived World War II in England, and and um, she had wanted to, to be a writer. And I didn't know any of this. She never told me this until I was, like, 100 years old, until I was, like, 30. You know, she never... It never came up, and we were having a conversation. I'm like, excuse me? Why did you leave that detail out? But she just didn't think about it until... She was sort of like, wow, this is really your career. Mm. And just so you know, like, your grandmother... Um, also had this idea of of being a writer and, and being a, a journalist. So I thought that was pretty cool. Did you know your grandmother? No. Well, my, no, my grandmother, I, I had, my grandmother died uh, when my mother was very young. Mm. 
Um, and so I had, she had a stepmother who I knew very well. Um, so she's my grandmother, you know, she's the person that I knew and grew up with, um, but that my mother didn't grow up with. And I knew my grandfather who was a very strong personality York man from Yorkshire. Um, I could get into like so many things here, but I will just leave it that his personality was extremely strong. And now I know where I get it from. (laughs) Thanks, grandpa. (laughs) Thanks, granddad. (laughs) And was your mom always a big role model in your life for you? It would be impossible for her not to be good, bad, or sideways. Um, She um, went to art school as a young person um, in England and and then ended up having several different careers. And I sort of watched her learn and constantly go back to school and constantly learn and learn languages. And she's a polyglot and all these things. And I was like, dude, I'm like the dumb kid like she just has all this knowledge and is a voracious reader um so having watched her have several lives I realized that you don't you you're not one thing and that nobody gets to tell you that you're one thing and that you can only do one thing and that you can only be one thing um the thing she taught me was that when it's time to change you have to have the courage to change and that it isn't going to be easy and it's not going to feel good at first because change can be hard but that it's possible and that you can your life can have many different you know sort of dips and and turns and there's no straight line to your personal success and I don't mean the world success I mean your personal fulfillment Mm. um, which has been an incredible ride so far and you guys traveled a lot Mm -hmm. together so that must have been there must have been something in you know your ultimately the desire to then become a international correspondent that you love traveling you love seeing new cultures you know new ways of thinking and that whole idea of it never being one thing yeah um we were dirt poor when my mother first came to this country um and the one thing that she would spend money on was travel. We didn't have a nice car. We didn't have a nice house. We lived way out in the country. We didn't have electricity. Like, we, we sort of lived, we, we lived sort of day to day. Um, but my mother made sure that we traveled. And for her, she had seen Europe. She had done that as a young woman. Um, and so it was South America that we traveled quite a bit when I was very young. Um, and the, the trip that made the most impact on me is um, we went to Colombia. We went through Colombia, and we went and we went and sort of had soup or something. I remember sitting there, and this child came up to me who had leprosy, um, and just looked it just covered in dirt, and just was just needed someone to love him. And he asked for some of my food, and I remember not being able to eat, like. I'd never seen, I mean, we were poor in America. This was like poverty that I'd never seen before, like a child on the street by himself, covered in dirt with sores on him, hungry, like really hungry, um, and wanted some of my my food. And and I I gave it to him, and I remember feeling sick that like, how is this possible? Um, So travel to me has been such, so enlightening and heartbreaking um, and enriching all wrapped up into one thing. Being in India, there were so many moments like that where it's like, I have too much and the guilt would sort of settle on your shoulders. Um, We used to, other correspondents and I, foreign correspondents for other 
um, newspapers and, and publications used to talk a lot about how come sometimes we felt really depressed in India. And it was partly because of seeing the haves and the have-nots and being a have and not knowing what you literally wanted to give away everything you had at some point because you would see people in such desperate situations that you wanted to do something. Um, and I always tried to do something, no matter how small or big, for the people that I came into contact that had almost nothing except for their lives. So. And, you know, you've been in so many extreme situations, you know, maybe not so much when you were a, a local television yeah. news anchor, but when you joined CNN 2007 and then after that spending time as a foreign correspondent in Jerusalem, Tripoli, New Delhi, Kabul, yeah. to name a few. Um, what is it that drives you in those situations? It's just the endless pursuit of understanding, really. Um, and I've always said this to people that some of why I do this is self selfish or self-enrichment or whatever. And when I meet, say enrichment, I mean to understand. I want to understand what it's like to be someone living in Egypt, what it's like to be, and I'm talking about from the highest echelons of socioeconomics to the lowest. Like I, Something about my personality needs to understand what that person does, how they see the world, how they see me, how they see others, how they see the rest of the world. There's something endlessly fascinating about human beings um, in general. And then when they're in other cultures, I, I want to I understand what their culture is, is like. Um, and not to judge it, just to understand it, just to get some sense of what it is. Because I feel like each culture has something to give to all of us. Um, and I've had that a thousand times. I mean, India is one of the most complicated places I have ever lived. So complex that when someone says they're an expert on India, I laugh. I'm like, impossible. There are 22 official languages. It is impossible to be an expert on India. It's too many different places all shoved into one subcontinent. Um, but there is an endless beauty and aesthetic there that has imprinted on me. Um, there's the music. Speaking of like being addicted to, you know, playing stuff over A.R. Rahman, there are so many people, Asha Bosle, listening to their music. I'm like, I'm hooked. I stopped watching Hollywood movies and started watching Bollywood movies for five years. Like, I didn't care about anything that we had. I was like, I am 100% all in. <laughs> and as my friend used to say, you're more Indian than we are. Like, because they wanted to see the Western movies, and I was like, no, 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 you guys go see that. I'm going to see this latest, you know, movie with Ashwarya Rai. Um, yeah, it's, it, has, it has changed me. Um, I always say this, that India finds a way to mix things mm. um, and become sort of Indian slash, you name it, and it certainly did that to me. So now I have to ask, what is the music that you would send into space? Okay, so I think I picked Tchaikovsky. Um, this song is so light and so airy and so happy to me. Um, that, and I heard it as a child. And I also loved classical music as a kid um, as well, which sounds like I was a full-on nerd. And I embrace that. And I love nerdiness. I love awkwardness. I love awkward people. So I'm putting that out there to the world. Um, but I, I love Tchaikovsky. I thought that 
um, there was something so ethereal, and so I figured it's kind of heavenly, so let's send it to the heavens. I completely agree. Let's listen to Waltz of the Flowers by Tchaikovsky. Hello, this is BC Wolf. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. I'm here with Sarah Seidner, um, <laughs> the impossibly amazing, wonderful, um, biggest heart I've ever met. And there's so much to say, and God, we could do two hours of this. Um, but we just listened to Waltz of the Flowers by Tchaikovsky. That's the music you'd send into space. Um, and, you know, just the amount that you've gone through in your career, the amount you've seen, and there's so much, and the situations you've been in, and the violence and hatred you've faced. Um, but within that, how, you know, I feel as if your, you know, your kind of role as this humane, honest, balanced correspondent, someone that's really trying to understand, and someone that's really trying to report what is going on without that shock value that is so attached to a lot of news reporting um firstly i just want to say thank you because you're awesome um but also i i want to know how do you balance out that Mm. how do you you know reconnect and um slow down and be reminded of the beauty of the world do you have any tips (laughs) um it's hard i don't I am often far, far, far way off balance. Um, and I've always, you know, there's always this thing, it's pretty like an 80s and 90s thing where like, you have to have balance in your life. You have to have your family and you have to have your that and everything has to be just so and you have to be, you know, all this stuff. It's like, you can be superwoman, you can do this and you can have this, but they all should be balanced. It's such bullshit. It's impossible to balance for me. There are other people that are like made out of something that is otherworldly that I marvel at. Um, women that I know who are like really good at saying no, but they are far and few between. Um, balance for me is just finding contentment and happiness with what it is I'm doing at the moment and trying to pay attention to what I'm doing. That doesn't always happen. I mean, my family suffers because of my job a hundred percent like a hundred percent they they go through it because of my work because it's always sort of gnawing at me and it's also because I turn my attention to it because I'm interested in it um so that balance is out of whack but I think as I'm as I'm getting older oh god the older speech but as I'm getting older I'm learning that the most important balance has to come from internal my internal self and that I have to be satisfied and happy um, and and growing inside the outside stuff is going to change a million times and I need to recognize um, when I am not being supportive and loving and when I am turning very robotic I know that I'm in trouble when everything feels robotic that I'm doing it on autopilot that I'm not 
fully human. And I feel that sometimes when I've worked, you know, every single weekend for two months or three months or, you know, I go off on a trip for a month and all I do the whole time I'm there is work. Um, so I have to find that place where I say, okay, you're at that point where you are becoming robotic. You have to step away. Meditating, running, exercising, all those things help. And all of those things help with music. So sometimes music takes me away for a couple of minutes and I can then go, okay, okay come back to yourself. Remember what you are and who you are. Um, it is very easy to get lost in this world because of all the things around you that are pulling at you. And it's that self-understanding that I have to get in touch with more and more and more often. What is the song that you would have at your memorial? Okay, so I love Dolly Parton. And Reba McIntyre, and I could name a thousand Deanna Carter. Like, I really love country music. It's something a lot of people don't know about me. Um, I Will Always Love You, when sung by Dolly, was a very different song when it was sung by Whitney Houston, who I also adore and am so sad she's gone. So that song encompassed two of the most powerful female voices of our time. And so that's the one that I would have played at my memorial. Let's take a listen to I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton. If I should stay, I would only be in your That was I Will Always Love You by Dolly Parton, and that was the song that Sarah Seidner would choose as her memorial track. Um, and you were just saying that both Dolly and Whitney's version sort of encompassed both sides of, well, female power, really. Yeah. Um, and you are the embodiment of female power in terms of, you know, I, re <laughs> I read somewhere that someone thought you'd be in a cage fighter in your past life <laughs> just because of how how you don't seem to get bothered by anything um, <laughs> but you're also incredibly gentle and loving and um, so we just have to wrap this up yeah. but I'd just like to ask you what is the record that you would pass on to your kids or symbolically the next generation and why? Songs in the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder, hands down and there are a thousand albums I'd like to hand over to next generations but that one has all the things that you need to learn honestly about being authentic and being a force for good and justice um, and, you know, being real. It's also beautiful, beautiful music. Um, there's so many different tracks on there that are just so good, but that's the one, definitely, 100%. And what's the thread that connects all of your Orange Juice for the Year choices? Deep meaning feeling it is the feeling that the music brings to your heart and your mind that's why i chose the music that i chose it's the feeling and from all the work that you've done what is one thing that you would pass on know thyself thank you so much sarah it's been an absolute pleasure and now we're going to listen to love's in need of love today Good morning, friends. Here's 
Cause you're friendly, you're now